one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, targeting the snail host of a parasitic disease and the successful launch of India's Chandrayaan 3 lunar mission. I'm Shamni Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up, reporter Jeff Marsh brings us a story about a battle to control a deadly disease in the fresh waters of Senegal. The first voice you'll hear is researcher C.D. Backhams. So I'm Dr. C.D. Bakum. I'm a biologist. I live in Senegal. Local population every day are in contact with the water. The kids come over there to, to swim when it is hot, for example, in the summer. So every day they come there. There are some fishermen. And others also use the water, for example, the farmers, to irrigate, to grow, for example, the rice, tomatoes, onions. In the rural communities of Son Louis in Senegal, these waterways are a lifeline and the communities rely on them for washing clothes, growing crops, cooking and drinking, and yes, cooling off in the summer. But it comes at a high risk. So, this water can be infected by the parasite. Cystosomasis make us a lot of problems. Schistosomiasis is a disease caused by a parasitic worm called a trematode and it has a huge impact in the tropical world. Here's Jason Rohr. He's been studying ways to combat this disease with CD. So it's actually the second most common human parasitic disease in the world behind malaria. Predominantly, uh, it's found in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. About 90% of the cases are found in sub-Saharan Africa, but it's also endemic in Southeast Asia, and uh, it's also found in Latin America and the Caribbean. 
Schistosomiasis can cause a wide range of symptoms and can be highly disabling, causing everything from abdominal pain and diarrhea to hypertension and problems with learning. In the worst cases, it can be deadly. Treating an individual with schistosomiasis is actually relatively simple, using widely available drugs, and yet transmission remains high. The typical way it's combated is with a mass drug administration. The common drug used to treat the disease is called praziquantal. The reason why that's not been very effective is because individuals who receive the treatment uh, do have most of their worms cleared, but as soon as they return to a water body, they get reinfected. Not only are drugs a short-term fix and difficult to achieve in the really rural areas, but with repeated administrations multiple times a year comes an increased likelihood of resistance forming in the parasites. Something needed to change, and Jason and CD have been working on a fresh approach. But before we get to that, we first need to understand this worm's complicated life cycle. So the adult uh, worms reproduce sexually in the human host. And those adults will release eggs that are released into the bladder or into the intestines and then are expelled from the human host either in urine or feces. Those eggs hatch in freshwater bodies and become um, neurocidia which is the first free-living larval stage. Those myricidia will swim through the water, searching for a snail intermediate host. If they successfully find a snail intermediate host, they will reproduce asexually in the snail and release a second free-living stage called a circariae. And the circariae also will swim through the water like the myricidia, but they're searching for the definitive host, which are humans. And if they are fortunate enough to find the skin of the human host, they'll penetrate the skin of the human host and enter into the circulatory system to eventually end up either in the veins around the intestines or around the bladder, depending on the species. And thus the cycle is complete, back to reinfect their human host. But as you just heard, their intermediary host was a freshwater snail. And those snails rely on the thick vegetation in these waterways for their habitat and for their food, an algae that lives on the vegetation. Which led the team to a simple idea. Here's CD again. If we remove the vegetation, we remove at the same time the host, a snail, a freshwater snail. So, if this snail is, for example, infected, we remove at the same time also the parasite. No snail, no parasite. Yes. And so, with the help of the local community, that's what they did. And it was a back-breaking effort. Over three years, a whopping total of 432 metric tons of vegetation was removed. Our work was sort of the, the first uh, large-scale clinical trial where we attempted to remove aquatic vegetation to control the snails and subsequently uh, human schistosomiasis. And the two treatment arms were vegetation removal or not. All of the children in the schools uh, had their worms treated first, and then we removed the vegetation in half of the villages, left the other half as controls, and then we returned and uh, took urine and fecal samples from the children a year later. The results of Jason and CD's study have been published in Nature this week, and I caught up with them about their findings. 
And I suppose the, the outcomes you were most interested in is, first of all, did it have an impact on the snail population? I suppose you can go and count those. And then did that have a corresponding effect on human inf- schistosomiasis infections? Correct. Yeah, so uh, if I remember correctly, it was, um, yes, there was an eightfold reduction in snails and a 32% reduction in uh, schistosoma mance and eye prevalence in school children. And there were other benefits too, weren't there, in, in that removing all that vegetation increased access for the local communities to the fresh water and safer fresh water. Yes, uh, so they... Uh, the community will um, go to these uh, water access points predominantly to get water for washing their clothes, for irrigation, for cooking purposes. And by removing all this uh, dense submerged aquatic vegetation, it's much easier for them uh, to put their buckets in to get water for those purposes, as well as uh, to swim. So that was one benefit. CD also mentioned to me that there were more benefits from the physical removal of the vegetation from these access points, including boats now able to navigate the waters. Several benefits. More space to travel, because we, if you have this, the vegetation, the boat can't cross the other side. So if we remove this vegetation, we have more space to move for the boat. And fishermen also have more access in the water. So lots of different benefits. Yeah, a lot, yes. And the gains didn't end there. Uh, A lot of the nutrients running off the landscape were being captured by uh, this aquatic vegetation, and so we wanted to return the nutrients captured in this vegetation back to its source, which was agriculture. And so we uh, tried to convert this public nuisance, this aquatic vegetation, into a private resource. And we did that by converting the vegetation into compost, and we showed that that compost significantly increased onion and pepper uh, production. And we also converted it into livestock feed, and we showed that it could be uh, cost-effectively used as livestock feed uh, for uh, sheep, cattle, and donkeys. And when you replace traditional fertilizers with this composted vegetation, how did that compare price-wise? So the economist involved in the project um, had documented a nearly nine-fold benefit-to-cost ratio when you included the public health benefits as well as the agricultural uh, and economic benefits. And you mentioned it was also used as feed for livestock. We uh, showed that if you replace traditional sheep feed with uh, this aquatic vegetation, they maintained weight up to 60% uh, replacement, uh, and it was up to 141 times cheaper uh, than purchasing feed. So in a way, this approach kills loads of birds with one stone, it sounds like. You've got infectious disease control, better access to food and water, poverty alleviation, and environmental sustainability it sounds like it it achieves a lot with one simple strategy yeah i mean that was our hope we were trying uh to identify uh an intervention that would have multiple wins do you see this being sustainable in the sense that people will carry on doing it yes we hope that it is sustainable you know we uh, would regularly have um, community members come and ask us what we were doing at these water access points and we would um 
inform them of, of what we were doing and why. And uh, in many cases, they volunteered to help us. What are your plans for scaling? Yeah, great question. Um, so what we've done is we've, we've flown drones uh, over uh, about 40 different villages um, across the seasons now. So that way we can essentially map where the different species of aquatic vegetation are in these water access points. And then we're linking that information uh, with satellite imagery of these water access points. And what that will allow us to do is essentially create uh, a map of where we think Schistosomiasis hotspots are in the landscape, which will allow us to target um, this intervention where we think it's needed the most. That was Jason Raw. You also heard from C.D. Backham. Both are from the University of Notre Dame in the US. You can find a link to their paper in the show notes. This piece was produced by Jeff Marsh. Coming up, the bizarre bird's nests made out of metal spikes. Right now, though, it's the research highlights with Noah Baker. Artificial intelligence is able to predict which pieces of art are most likely to be remembered. Viewing art is thought to be a subjective experience, but according to new research, a person's memory of an artwork is surprisingly predictable. A team in the US set out to discover which of a museum collection of over 4,000 paintings were most memorable. In one experiment, 19 visitors to the museum were surveyed and asked which pictures they remembered from their visit. In a second online experiment, more than 3,000 people were shown a series of images and asked to press a key when they recognised an image from earlier in the sequence. And in a third experiment, 40 participants rated paintings based on their perception of things like beauty and how much they were interested by them. The researchers found that participants tended to remember the same paintings. Larger, less cluttered pictures were better remembered than smaller, crowded ones. Perhaps unsurprisingly, people also tended to recall artworks that piqued their interest. Based on these insights, a machine learning model was able to predict which artworks were more likely to be remembered, as well as the relative fame of renowned pieces exhibited in the museum. Read more in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Supersonic microbullets have been softly captured by a new ultra-thin gel. Shock-absorbing materials are crucial for protection against strikes from bullets, shrapnel and space debris, but most of them only partially blunt the blow. For example, bulletproof armour deforms and the flesh behind it gets bruised. But this wafer-thin sheet of shock-absorbing gel completely absorbed the blow from microscopic bullets, striking it at four times the speed of sound, leaving no trace on the gel's aluminium backing. To make their material, a team in the UK incorporated talin, a helical protein found in biological cells. In the body, talin unfolds to relieve stress when mechanical forces are exerted on cells, averaging them out. Then it refolds when the forces dissipate. In the shock-absorbing gel, the protein does something similar, unfolding in trillionths of a second to dissipate high-energy impacts. Supersonic projectiles made of stone tore through a commercial ballistics gel and made craters in the aluminium behind it. But by contrast, the same projectiles became embedded in a sheet of the talin-based gel that was only 5mm thick. The bullets themselves also remained undamaged. 
You can read more in Nature Nanotechnology. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. Shamini, why don't you go first this week? What have you got? So we are off to the moon. I've got a space story that I've been reading a Nature News article about, and it's India's Chandrayaan-3 lunar mission. They're heading for the moon, and they've launched, and the idea is, hopefully, they will become the fourth country to achieve a controlled landing on the moon after the United States, the Soviet Union, and China. I think the word controlled there is doing a lot of lifting in that sentence, Shamini. Maybe we could unpick that later on. But yeah, so Chandrayaan 3 then. How did we get to here? Yeah, Chandrayaan 3, as the name might suggest, the third lunar mission. And this is where your comment about a controlled landing comes in. Chandrayaan 2, back in 2019, had some successes and some failures. So the Indian Space Research Organisation, they're the ones doing this, the ISRO, they sent an orbiter into orbit with functioning instruments but they were also trying to put a rover onto the moon surface via a lander and that's the bit that didn't go so well not exactly a a controlled landing and sadly their uh, lander crashed just in the final moments of descent so they have learnt from that they are trying again and there's quite a lot of changes they've made this time to the new lander which is called Vikram, and it's got a little robotic rover on it called Pragyan. And it's got all sorts of changes. So it's got a few design tweaks. There are new instruments to handle failures, algorithms to deal with unanticipated deviations. And apparently the lander is just sort of bigger and heavier too. So yeah, I I get the impression that they put a lot of effort into hoping that this one won't crash. Yeah, because, you know, we've covered on the podcast several times about how it's those last few hundred feet can really Mm. be the most difficult bit in many ways. And it is difficult enough flying all that way. So that's the plan for the mission then. Where is it right now? Then what's going on? Yeah, so they've launched on Tuesday, the 14th of July. And apparently the lander is supposed to come down somewhere near the moon's south pole on the 23rd of August. And then on the lander is this little six-wheeled robot, which is going to wander around near the landing site. I quite like this little nugget from the article. It says it's going to explore the area for one lunar day, which is the equivalent of 14 Earth days. Nice. So two weeks rolling on the lunar surface. And assuming all goes well, then, what's the plan then? What's the sort of scientific thrust for this mission? Well, both the lander and the rover have a bunch of instruments on board, looking at the density of ions and electrons, temperature, a seismograph, checking for moonquakes. And I think in particular, some of the instruments are potentially more advanced or or more sensitive than the ones from previous successful lunar landings. So one scientist quoted said that, you know, hopefully this mission will help make some unprecedented measurements of the moon's chemical makeup. So, you know, in particular, look at the elements in the soil and rocks around the landing site that seems to be something they're particularly interested in. And you mentioned there that this lander is due to land on the south pole of the moon. Is that somewhere that's particularly of interest to researchers? Yeah, so it's certainly further away from where previous moon missions have landed. They've tended to be closer to the equator. And the lunar south pole has some sort of interesting features. For example, part of it is permanently in shadow. There are also some big craters near there. So, you know, it could have clues towards the composition of the early solar system. And again, sort of how all of these things formed. And one of the scientists quoted here says, Chandrayaan 3 will provide a close-up view of an entirely new region of the moon. Well, I guess all eyes will be moonward in late (laughs) August then. And we'll see how the Chandrayaan 3 mission 
gets on and to say it's awfully tricky that last bit so i'm sure everyone involved is keeping their fingers crossed but for the time being let's move on to a story that i read about in the guardian and it's kind of wild really and it's based on some research that was published in dnc the annual of the natural history museum rotterdam and it's all about birds nests and birds are well known for making nests out of all sorts of materials right but not just sticks and and bits of branch and stuff the kind of detritus that humanity leaves lying around but in this work some birds have taken it one further and they've made nests out of something that's really supposed to deter them they've turned the tables and they've made nests out of anti-bird spikes oh i think i saw photos of this so this is like horrible spikes that are supposed to stop pigeons sitting there and pooing down the buildings, I guess. How do you make a nest out of that? I mean, you're absolutely right. Yeah, on my way to work this morning here in London, I saw, you know, loads of these things right on yeah. top of lampposts and, and buildings. And you're right, usually used to keep pigeons away. And in this case, say, rather than deterring birds, they've been put to a different use. And our story starts with a PhD student in the Netherlands, Oka Florian Himstra, who is a student that looks at the structures made by animals with a focus on things like plastic pollution. Mm. Okay. And in this case, they got a message about an interesting looking nest outside a hospital in Antwerp in Belgium. Okay. And this is in 2021. And it was on the top of a tree and it was a magpie nest. And as you say, like it is the most frightening kind of industrial looking thing you have ever seen it's spikes in every single direction you can imagine right and it turns out that the magpies that made it ripped 50 meters of anti-bird spikes from the roof of the hospital so 1500 spikes ah they've just ripped it up from where it is and taken it to a tree yeah rather than just finding discarded spikes they've just removed them and just left behind the glue that was used to keep them on top they're just like we'll have this (laughs) looks great to build a nest how comfy for our little chicks why is that a silly question why magpies why well do you know what it's not a silly question because these nests really fit in with the magpie lifestyle okay so magpies typically when they're making nests out in the open they build what's called a dome nest okay so it has kind of a roof structure to prevent other animals like carrion crows coming in and eating Mm. the eggs they usually pepper this kind of dome with upward facing thorns and brambles and stuff like that right it's basically spikes but when they can't find any spikes in kind of an urban environment what do they turn to they turn to anti-bird spikes so they're actually using the anti-bird spikes to deter other birds which is absolutely fascinating i think i mean that is what they're designed for so it's really metal in sort of multiple senses of the word (laughs) do you think the magpies make the inside of the nest kind of comfy at least well i do know that in other cases you know birds have wedged branches inside anti-bird spikes this is not unheard of behavior but in this case also what's interesting is this isn't n equals one okay so as part of this research they then went out to see could they find any other examples and the answer is yes they did they found four of these other nests right three made by magpies and one made by crows crows trying to keep away the magpies we've stumbled into the crow magpie war here i think well who knows but what these birds have got in common is that they're corvids okay and we know that corvids are clever birds and reading this paper there's so many interesting facts in here corvids have made nests out of you know human products i suppose for a very very long time you know barbed wire back in the 1930s electrical cables you name it knitting needles as well so the magpies have been using these as well as the anti-bird spikes and it shows that that these animals really do have quite a remarkable 
adaptability. But in terms of this research, there's a great quote from the researcher behind the paper who says, even for me as a nest researcher, these are the craziest bird's (laughs) nests I've ever seen. Good for the birds, maybe not good for the bird spike installers. So are there any sort of big biological questions that the researchers want to answer? Well, yeah, in terms of animal behaviour, there's a few questions to answer here. I mean, for example, are the birds using these spikes because they're available or are they actually intrinsically better Mm. than the natural products Mm. that they would typically use? Or is it just that they can't find them? How successful is this approach? Are there more nests to find? And will this behavior spread as well? Because that's something we've discussed on the podcast before about cockatoos in Australia learning how to get into Mm. bins because they learn from each other. So whether this is kind of the thin end of the wedge, I suppose, is an interesting one. But there's so much going on here. It turns out I also learned that peregrine falcons use anti-bird spikes to impale their leftover (gasps) prey and kind of come back to it later on. So it seems like there's quite a few birds getting in on the anti-bird spikes. So yeah, next time I'm wandering around central London looking up at these things, I'll uh, maybe be looking at them in a slightly different light. Urban wildlife is so cool. I'm 100% going to be peering around all the trees for corvid nests. I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for peregrine falcons. Yes, please. Well, thank you very much for sharing that with us, Ben. And there'll be links to both of those stories in the show notes, including where you can see some nice photos of these very cool metal bird spike nests. And you can also sign up for The Nature Briefing, which will bring you a roundup of exciting science stories like these. And that's all for this week. If you want to keep in touch with us, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Shamli Bundell. Thanks for listening.